Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. Another week and another fantastic guest. And this week, I'm delighted to announce someone from across the pond and um, five hours behind, I think. And the person sitting in front of me is Norm Rosenthal. So I'm very look, much looking forward to talking to him about all sorts of things. Fascinating collection of books he's written. So um, I can't wait to start. So first of all, hi there, Norm. How are you? I'm great. Hi. A pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So where in the world are you? I am just outside of Washington, D.C., Bethesda, oh. Maryland. Very great. I love it. Washington is a beautiful city, isn't it? It is. It is. Very grand. Very grand, indeed. And very expensive for hotels, as I remember from the last time I was there. Indeed. <laughs> so tell us a bit about yourself, Norm. Tell me a little bit about your background. What is that? What is it that you do? Well, I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. And from a very early age, 16, I knew I wanted to do research in psychiatry, research in the brain. Okay. And that drove a lot of my um, activities professionally. Mm -hmm. I became a doctor in Johannesburg. I came to New York City, got my psychiatry training mm -hmm. at Columbia. And then I came to the National Institute of Mental Health, the NIM, which was and is a premium psychiatry research facility in the country and perhaps in the world. Yes. There um, I stumbled upon something that became the core of my research career, although I've done other things as well. And I can get into that uh, a little bit in a moment, but I've also dual, I've had a dual ambition and that is to be a writer, ah. so I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I was fascinated in how the brain works, yeah. but brain can be elucidated through science, but it can also be elucidated through art and literature. Yes. So it's that convergence of science, art, and literature that has governed my career. I've been a practicing psychiatrist, a researcher, a businessman. I did clinical trials, but now I see myself mostly as a writer. That's nice. And and has this been a, a planned approach, or have you sort of is, you know, have you been you know doing one of those life plans, or has this been a sort of an emergent career? Emergent is the right word. I think of, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey, where they sort of find the obelisk and it points to something else. And then it goes further and further. And it's how 
life has a shaping influence on how our core ambitions and goals actually manifest themselves. Right. And it's fascinating here to talk about research because there's a lot of spurious research around the brain. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, cod psychology dressed up as psychiatry. There's a lot of very flaky claims made around brain science. I mean, that's my view. I mean, I, you seem to be nodding. Uh, uh, what what do you think? I think it's true. I think uh, a lot of findings cannot be reproduced by mm. other centres, and therefore you have to wonder what happened. Was it just wishful thinking? Was it crookery? Was it just a you know? honest mistake uh, yeah. is not really a real phenomenon. That's why replication is crucial, even though it's more boring. People like to have published something that's new, not that's replicated. But yes. uh, so I think that it's hard to have research that holds up in different centers and over time. Yes. Been important for me. Uh, and that's fascinating. I mean, we can think of probably two of the most, you know, sort of celebrated psychological experiments and, and different from psychiatry because there's different ed- evidence base. But, uh, you know, things like goal theory, you know, the famous writing down your goals, which is something that never existed. And then the old prisoner experiment uh, as such, like never existed. And then the whole notion around food and food diaries, you know, makes that sort of in- interesting research very, very flawed. And I think it's only now since we're seeing better quality research that we're actually seeing genuine links between the brain, what we eat, exercise, the organ, the health of the organ, and then our ability to actually manipulate our own sort of well-being and health. And then, then of course, then if you want to do all this, you know, jazzy stuff around purpose and all that values and all that old blah, you can. But you have to start with the fundamentals about how the human ticks based on sensible research. Um, so... So you talked about the fact that one of the things that you're famous for, I guess, is SAD. So maybe you could unpack that a little bit for us. Well, yes. Um, I was fortunate to arrive at the NIH at a time when uh, a, a rather fascinating discovery was occurring. And that was that light did more than just enable us to see. Everybody knew light caused you to see and the rods and the cones in the eye mediated that function of the mm-hmm. eye. and uh, But at that time, uh, it was found that in humans, bright light could suppress melatonin secretion. Um, now, melatonin is a hormone that's secreted by a tiny little gland called the pineal tucked in the center underneath the brain. And it's very important for seasonal rhythms throughout the animal kingdom. So now, certain things began to be appreciated. Firstly, that light did more than just enable vision. Secondly, that perhaps people could be seasonal because melatonin was being suppressed by light. And then in the context of these new findings, a scientist approached us, uh, somebody who was an engineer and who had noticed seasonal rhythms in his own life, And uh, that as the days got shorter, he got depressed. And as they got longer, he emerged and brought him into our center and exposed him to bright light during one of his depressions. And he emerged. So, you know, as they say, one swallow does not a summer make. And so we needed to get a group of people. And that's when I went to the media and recruited through the media uh, people who came forward uh, 
pouring out in thousands. There was no internet at that time, so they yeah. sent us letters. And their, their, their little notes would drop out and they would be like um, messages from far away in the universe saying, you know, this is real. This is happening to me. And then we started doing, as we have to do, controlled studies using bright light and controls and found that, yes, there was a syndrome. It is called, we called it seasonal affective disorder, which had the catchy acronym of SAD that it did respond to bright light in controlled studies. And then we had we had to try to replicate our own findings. We had to have other people replicate our findings, which they did. And uh, so we were off and running. And that really led to the key uh, discovery of my research career. There were other things and there are other things and they're interesting in their own right. But this is the thing for which I'll probably be best remembered. Yes. So let, let's unpack it a bit more for me, for those people in the audience that aren't technicians or, in, you know, who, in, who are interested in it, but maybe don't understand it. So so what's going on when um, uh, light is producing this seasonal effect so there's obviously some sort of, so you mentioned the pineal, and there's obviously a, 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 a hormonal cascade of some description, maybe cascade's the wrong term, but what's physically going on in our heads or in our brains when we have too much or too little or the wrong sort of light? Well, um, rodent experiments now show that light has a direct activating mood altering effect in rodents, and they've actually delineated the neural pathways that enable this to happen. And interestingly, they are not mediated through the classical eye receptors, the classical retinal receptors, the rods and the cones. Yeah. They are intrinsically photosensitive, these cells. They actually respond to light directly right. and have circuits that go to other places than the ones that the rods and cones go to. So they don't act through our circadian rhythms, which we know a lot about. Yeah. They don't act through making us more active. Maybe they act that way as well, but there's also this sort of separate pathway relatively recently discovered. Mm -hmm. So really it was one of those rare situations where the human research preceded the animal research. And, uh, you, you know, so now the circuits by which the, light comes in through the eye and goes to these various brain centers are complex. So you could imagine that if there were barriers or impediments at a number of different points along the way, yeah. that could be responsible for this syndrome occurring. So one of the most fascinating cases for me was a middle-aged man who had for two years had a uh, seasonal affective disorder. Now it's very unusual to hit a man in middle age. And I asked, you know, have you moved your occupation? Maybe you used to work outdoors and now you're indoors, or maybe you lived up in a penthouse where there was lots of light and now you're in the basement, um, but none of the above applied. And so, you know, we got through the interview and he, I was telling him how to start using light therapy and his wife said, well, what about his cataract? Oh. What cataract? Two years before or three years before, just before the syndrome started, he had a motor accident, his eye was injured, and now there was like a carapace or covering over one eye. Yeah. 
he'd lost half of the light coming into his eyes. Yeah. So it was a beautiful example of how at the very front end of the system, you can have some kind of barrier or impediment that would then cause this whole cascade of symptoms. So, but there are others. There are, there's one study that shows a subtle deficiency in the retina. Very, very, you have to use special equipment mm. to elicit this and so on and so forth. Maybe they're secreting too much or too little melatonin. Maybe they're neurotransmitters, serotonin, you know, that famous neurotransmitter that is affected by Prozac and other uh, antidepressants. There's evidence that there could be errors at all of these junctures, and we don't actually know. We've tried to elicit the genes because there's a genetic basis for it, but so far, nobody has been able to find the genes responsible. We had one study that looked at a serotonin-related gene, and sure enough, it was different in patients and in controls, never got replicated. That's the problem. You see, you can't just have one, one good finding. It's got to be replicated before you can really believe it. And there are billions and billions of um, you know, series of letters, aren't they, with uh, the genetic code? So finding the the error is the challenge. I, I know it's been there's a particular form of cancer being used uh, an AI algorithm, which has actually found the link. So it may well be that AI is going to open up these genetic or predispositions. So so um, what's interesting then? So the effects the effects of SAD are often described as a form of depression. Now, so so there's often a, seems to be a correlation between depression, but there's no causation, is there? So you can have depression without being sad. Is that true? Or so that it's that, not the only is, cause of depression? That is true. But here's an interesting fact. Okay. The light therapy that is so helpful and potent for sad can actually help people with non-seasonal depression. Right. So it turns out that light is a general therapeutic principle yeah. that can be useful across the board in a number of different psychiatric conditions. So that classic piece of advice that people get, which is get off your get off your couch and go for a walk, is is whilst it's exercise and it's good for you, it's actually just about exposing yourself to more natural light. Plus the exercise itself, itself is yeah. even absent the light. But when you combine the two, yeah. then you've got a potent mix. Yeah. And so um I mean, when we talk about light therapy, are you talking about things like sad boxes, light boxes, waking up to different forms of light? Is 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 that something that's um, act, an actually an actual proper therapeutic approach, or is this more marketing people getting excited? Well, you know, it is a legitimate approach, and marketing people sometimes are excited for good reason. You know, obviously they can market. When you look at the offerings for light boxes, watch out because the teeny weeny ones yeah. put out as much light, but you have to have your nose exactly in the right place to get it. So I like a bigger light. Um, and I, you know, in my book, I do mention the exact lights that I have found, we have found to be effective for light therapy. Uh, not the teeny ones, not the cheap, cheap ones. Uh, but the ones that have actually been studied in research, in research, yes. you in Britain have got some very good light light box companies. Yes, yes. And, and it's interesting because I know you've written a book on jet lag, and I mean, I just was interested how much jet lag affects. Is that more of a circadian rhythm type thing, or is that affected by light as well? 
Well, it is a circadian rhythm thing, but light is very important in regulating circadian rhythms. Like, for example, if you use light very late at night, you'll push the rhythms later. If yeah. you use it very early in the morning, you'll push it earlier. So um, light is important for circadian rhythms, independent of its effects on mood. I see. That makes sense. So you've also written a lot of books. I'm just, um, you know, when we were chatting earlier, I was looking at all your stuff. You've you've written a lot about tea, transcendental meditation as well. So I just wouldn't trust. I know we're here to talk about sad, but it, it's it's tickled my interest vibe. Maybe you, it's because meditation's got quite a lot of flaky research attached to it, I always think. Um, so I just wondered if you could take us through the sort of evidence base on TM, or maybe there yes. doesn't need to be. Maybe this it's just a practice that actually correlates with feeling better. No, there's tons of evidence, actually. Uh, but But what I often get intrigued when I do something and and I find it potent personally, and that yeah. kind of motivates me. So it's not a coincidence that when I came from South Africa to the United States, I actually experienced winter depression for the first time in my life. I and I would come out in the spring and summer, and it never happened in South Africa. So I thought something very strange is going on inside me. And that really has been a driving force because originally people laughed at me and, and mocked me and at, at professional meetings, they'd say, come, let's stand under the lights. I'm already getting depressed and so on and so forth. But I had the conviction because I had experienced it myself. So segue across to transcendental meditation. There was something I'd done as a medical student back in South Africa. I didn't take it very seriously. It was like one of those cool things that you do. Uh, but then um, a patient of mine, 35 years later in my office, is telling me that transcendental meditation has really made him feel very happy most of the time. Mm -hmm. I told him, you know, I've done it myself, and then I let it lapse and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you've got to get back to it. So, you know, I, it was like a voice coming to me from the universe. I got back, I learned it, I relearned it, and I've now practiced it for 17 years. And I, I did it this morning. I can tell you, it is an extraordinarily potent and effective technique. It's not hooked to any religion or any belief system. It's just a standalone technique. And I was so intrigued. Plus, there's a lot of research on it. It lowers blood pressure. It, uh, I, I saw it help people with post-traumatic stress disorder. So that motivated me to write the book Transcendence. And then I meditated for another five years and I wrote another book on the subject. Now you don't write two books on something unless you really feel that it's done you a lot of good. And, and yes. I've seen it in my patients. So that's why that led me on that particular uh, track. And and the thing about, and, and I may have this all about face, so forgive me if I do, because uh, tricky keeping up with things but transcendental meditation is the one where you have a mantra and you and you repeat that and such like and if that's right and um that is that, that is right true. yes then i just wonder i wonder if it because there's a lot of research on vagus nerve and and the effects of humming and such like and i just wondered if if there's a correlation between those two sort of systems whether or or, or that's just that's just cod psychology because i do see quite a lot of research around that sort of area at the moment 
Well, I think that's very important. The vagus nerve is, vagus in Latin is wanderer. Wanderer, yeah. It wanders all throughout the body. It's so widespread through mm. its, you know, roots and through its branches and connections. And um, I believe that a lot of these techniques that cause you to relax physically and mentally are having a powerful effect on the vagus. Now, for example, one thing the vagus does is it actually activates the bowel so you know it, it clicks in when you're digesting your food it, it causes peristalsis and it activates the bowel and i have often noticed when i sit down and meditate my tummy can begin to rumble mm. and it's the vagus nerve clicking mm. in and doing its job so yes i think there may be you know many pathways to relaxation and many ways to relax including the actions of the vagus nerve. How fascinating. So, so Norm, um, how can people find out more about your work? Well, the first thing is my website, normanrosenthal.com. Um, they can also look for the latest book, which is a, a distillation of everything that I know and want to tell people about seasonal affective disorder or SAD and how to treat it. Bottom line is, you want to use multiple different approaches. You don't just want to say, oh, I've got a light box and that's it. You've got to use lots of things. I quote the poet, Greek poet Archilochus, who said, the fox has many tricks, but the porcupine has one big trick. And our big trick with SAD is light therapy, but you need to use many tricks, exercise, cognitive interventions, socialization, and other things that I elucidate in the book and that is what i've learned and that is what i do with my own patients in my clinical practice and i recommend to people who have this particular problem fantastic well i've just bought it so it's on amazon.co.uk so i'm fascinated so uh so you have one cell so that's great that, that, i'm sure you have millions and millions and millions i'm just, I'm just everything talking. starts with a, the journey of a thousand miles starts with oh, a single cell so i'm so excited i'm really fascinated by this i'm going to so i have a, just to purchase that copy but but and, and looking at it what's po poetry rx all about oh i have been entranced with poetry and i have been convinced that poetry has therapeutic potencies i agree yeah you know, and for years I had collected in my mind poems that moved me, that meant something to me. So finally, I found a mode to express this that would be accessible because you don't want a long treatise. So I collected 50 poems and I organized them into categories, loving and losing, uh, the human experience, all the way through to aging and dying. And I collected them in, in groups and I put the poem out there because you should never do anything on the page where the poem appears. It's mm -hmm. got to stand by itself. And then I told people what I thought it meant to me and what I thought you could take away from the poem. I gave like four or five takeaways that are very relevant because I've learned that from my clinical practice. And then I gave a little vignette about the poem and the poet, how this creation organically came from the mind of this brilliant and amazing human being. Mm -hmm. So I did that 50 times and it's turned out to be 
extremely popular people have it at their bedsides and they keep telling me, you know, you must do more of those, those poems. I said, well, you know, maybe, but right now I'm doing something else. But it, it has been a very popular uh, book. Yeah, it's fine. Yes, I, 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 I intrinsically agree with you about that. Sorry, not intrinsically. I instinctively agree with your um, analysis of poetry. There is, I think, it brings together rhythm. It, gains, it brings together imagination, doesn't it? It brings together structure. It gives. It brings so many different cognitive elements together, uh, which are very different from fiction. And fiction has its own use and reading nonfiction as well. But there is something odd about poetry, doesn't it? There's, it, it just perhaps because there doesn't have to be a point to it. It's a bit like any sort of great art. It's being created for the for the benefit of someone who wants to create great art, and naturally, then it's about someone who, you know, it's left to all of us to interpret it for ourselves. Exactly. In fact, you might be interested that there was one study done. It's a German study of people who listened to great poetry while being in an MRI machine, and it, it showed that it it had two measurable effects. The one was like it got their their nerve endings, like the the nerve endings that that occur when you shiver or um, the, the hairs, like you know your, your hair stands on end. Yeah. They could measure that, and at the same time they could see that in the reward center in the brain, uh, people were being activated in that in that way by listening to great poetry. So I think that it's uh, I wouldn't say it's a lost art. But it's an art that could use more attention because of the great powers that it has, and that's why it survived for thousands of years. Yeah, well, and I and I absolutely agree with you because actually, in a funny sort, because of course, my own very very first career was in as a professional musician. So, uh, you know, I worked in the world of classical music, and it's the same a similar sort of thing. There are huge therapeutic um, benefits from classical music, and and um something about the sort of particular modality the rhythms and a lot of there's a lot of research around barks talk out uh, fugues and such like in the complex rhythms and interplay and the way the brain active is activated and, and you know processes that stuff um and i think there's something just genuinely exciting about the arts and our mental health which is which just needs which just needs the evidence which all exists to somehow become more more um um understandable maybe that's the word and the fact that we can use that um your idea about measuring the the hairs on your arms i think that's brilliant because it's it's very relatable isn't it it is and it obviously it would be wonderful to see the research or do the research but the realities are research is so expensive and difficult to do that in the meanwhile we must rely on our instincts yeah. if our instinct is saying there's something really there Let's go with our instinct until the research gets That's done. Right. Catches us up. To wait, you know. Yeah, and I think it's about one's own modality, isn't it? I think I find uh, music more inspiring because, of course, I've got a background in understanding of it. And you often find people who are quite, you know, the old sort of idea, the old multi-intelligence idea of auditory recognition. You know, they often, I think, would appreciate poetry, whereas often. People who have the sort of imagery type thing tend to seem to like pictures and pictorial type stuff. 
And, and, I, and I know it's Howard Gordon, there's not much research to back up what he says, but it's about finding your own thing, isn't it? It's about finding the thing that works for you, not necessarily having to advocate it for everybody else, because different things work differently for a range of people. That's why I like your poetry thing, because it's it's sort of new and it's it's different, isn't it? It it really is. And and um I you know, I did sit with it for years before I could find a way to express it. Yeah. That that has been accessible to people. And um, I was I was very happy with, because poetry, uh, you, you know, I, I was rejected by four agents and two editors before I found uh, the little publisher that could, uh, so to speak, uh, that would pick it up. And, yeah. and they've been very pleased with how it's done. And so have I. And, and also, it's not only how many copies you sell, but yeah. the the feeling that you've actually moved people yeah. or, and people have come to me and said, you know, that poem, I love that book. I love that book. It's by my bedside. And, and, you know, one of my friends said, well, how, how's this doing in the ratings? And I said, you know, we just had a presentation and someone came up to me at the end and said, you know, such and such a book changed my life. I said, how many sales do you need to have? to make to equate equate with yes such a thing to just know you've yeah. really helped people is yeah. very powerful and it's because of the difference between people buying something and people reading it and that's i right. think and i think we often forget that so that's fascinating no i could i've just actually noticed the time and i, I promised that this would be, <laughs> we'd be done by now but it's still been so fascinating that uh um i've sort of gibbered on so thank you for spending time with us today look so people um if you're interested in finding out more about Norm, it's normanrosenthal.com. Um, his latest book is Defeating Sad, which is Seasonal Affective Disorder. It's on Amazon, uh, certainly in the UK, and that means it's everywhere else. And there's, if you go to Norm's page, um, there's tons of other books, Gift of Adversity, Transcendence, Emotional Revolution, St. John's Wort, tons of stuff. I'm going to have a good old um dig around dig around later on uh, thank you for spending so much time with us today norm i really do appreciate it. it's been absolutely brilliant thank you i've really enjoyed it smashing you take care hi everybody i hope you found that episode useful and interesting feedback is always welcomed and if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on itunes or stitcher that would be amazing if you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.